what's happening, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Burkelhammer. So today, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Dr. Eli Meyer to the show from Aquabiomics. What's up there, Eli? Hello. Good to see you. So um, we had Eli on a couple of months ago. We had some uh, technical difficulties. We, we believe that those technical difficulties have been uh, worked out because there's been a, uh, a change in venue. For, uh, That's for right. Eli. New laptop, new internet connection. Hopefully, everything uh, behaves. Yes, yes, yes. We uh, we think uh, we're gonna we're gonna have some good mojo for this uh, this live stream. Um, for those, you can see I'm actually in the lab here. You can see the PCR machine right behind me there. The the heart of Aquabiomics. There you go. There you go. Um, just a little bit background on on Eli. He is a a coral biologist and aquarium hobbyist, and he owns Aquabiomics. Aquabiomics can analyze the microbiome of an aquarium using DNA sequencing so they can diagnose issues and identify strategies for promoting a healthy microbiome in a, an aquarium. And um, so before we start chatting and getting in, into the conversation with Eli, I want to thank the sponsors for the show, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate them supporting and sponsoring the show. And I, as always, I appreciate you folks tuning in and um, please spread the word about the stream hit that like button to uh, get more people into the stream and if you wouldn't mind subscribing to the channel that would be awesome so um folks thanks for um for tuning in i, I see that we got a bunch of people in the uh, in the chat and uh on the stream here so as always um feel free to drop comments and questions in the chat so eli i think Pretty much where we were in our conversation the last time a couple of months ago in August was we were kind of getting into the nitty gritty of the results that um, that you guys have analyzed for my um, my 187 gallon tank, right? Yep, you got this nice before and after series samples uh, before you added some rock and and after. It looks like we saw some some real changes. Yeah, yeah. So um, I've got um, I've got data from three different tests that um three different samples that i sent in to you guys so let me um let me just kind of like lay the uh the groundwork in terms of what my situation was and i i've talked about this before but just to kind of like summarize it it um about three months ago i completely swapped out the haitian live rock about 125 pounds of haitian live rock that i had in my 187 gallon reef tank and you know it was a very mature reef tank it was about five years old. It was um, packed with corals. The, the Haitian lab rock was completely encrusted with uh, with coral. I would say 95% of the surface of the rock that was facing the light was encrusted with coral. So, you know, I made the call. <clears throat> it was a very tough call because it was a, uh, a beautiful mature reef tank to, uh, to do the reboot on the tank because it was just, it was, it was a situation where I was getting so much growth and corals were kind of choking each other out. I was um, getting a lot less flow in that tank. So there was a, you know, there was a little, um, you know, STN going on at some of the base of the corals, but um, I mean, it was a healthy tank. I mean, there was no doubt about it. It was, it was thriving. So it's a good problem to have. It, in a lot it, of ways. It, it is a good problem to have. And, yeah. and I was, uh, I'm not complaining by any means, <laughs> but, um, so, you know, and, and I'm a coral farmer, so I, I wanted to uh, have more real estate to grow, um, corals. I think I had probably at that point in time, about 11 mature 
colonies in the tank and and um some of those colonies i had this uh tub stilata montiporo which was just ginormous Let's see if mm. i can get it on the screen right here it was it was huge probably um i don't know um 14 inches across i had this cali tort that i think at one point in time i measured to be 18 inches across so it um it was it was great but it was it was um yeah. it was just kind of like time i thought it was time to uh, to reboot it so you know the question was man how do you how do you do that and keep the um the microbiome intact and and you know i wanted to swap out the haitian live rock given the fact that it was completely encrusted so it would have been very tough for me to um remove the rock chisel off all the um encrusted coral and put it back in i just felt like it was going to be too much of a um a disturbance to the tank to do that and i wasn't quite sure you know if i was going to be able to kind of use a uh, chisel to, to chip off all the all the coral in that rock yeah and, and i also i also wanted you know it was 125 pounds of uh, live rock and 187 gallon tank i wanted a more open aquascape and um you know places for uh, for fish to swim through so it was um it was kind of always a desire of mine to to do that and um i had never had success well the one time i tried using dry rock to start a reef tank it was um it was a um a big fail i um i made some mistakes mm -hmm. along the way and it was it was tough and i had to um reboot that tank which is the same tank that we're talking about and that's when i put yeah, the haitian yeah. live rock in there so um yeah anyway i wanted to um so i used this uh I, I picked up some carob sea life rock and i um my plan was to do basically to get a rubbermaid tub i already had a 100 gallon rubbermaid tub so i wanted to um put the um i wanted to cook the um carob sea life rock in that rubbermaid tub for a few months and i think i ended up doing it for for six months and um what i did was every week i did a 10 percent you know uh, water change with the established tank water. I also dosed um, Microbacter 7 on a daily basis. And then um, I was also dosing the main display tank with uh, with Microbacter 7 as well. And I had two frag tanks that are still plumbed into the whole system. So um, so the plan was to, to do all that. And, um, and then um, I also wanted to put on a cryptic sump. So I wanted to plumb in a cryptic sump. And what I ended up getting was a, um, a 50 gallon, basically a, a black polyurethane box cube, two, two foot by two foot by two foot, I think is what it, it measures. And um, the plan was to put the Haitian live rock from the established uh, tank, pull it out, chip off as much of the uh, coral as I could, and um, put that in the cryptic sump and put the um, the cooked carob sea life rock into the uh, display tank and so um mm. i think uh i think that kind of um lays out the uh, the situation and, and the, so what i did was before i did all of that um i submitted some uh, samples with you for the mm -hmm. um the tank before anything was done so it was kind of like what what uh, we're calling the pre-test and, right. and then um i think three four months into the um uh, the uh, cooking the rock in the uh, Rubbermaid tub, I, I did a sample of that, of the Rubbermaid tub right. sample. So that was, that was a second sample that I submitted to you guys. And then the third sample, I believe, was um, uh, the post sample, which might have been two, three, four weeks. I can't recall exactly how, how long after the, the, the final switch was done. But I, um, <coughs> I, I submitted all that stuff to you. 
So we had three different samples, the uh, pretest, the Rubbermaid tub sample, and the, um, and the post-test. And, and the goal, really, the overriding goal for me was to, um, to see whether or not I was able to maintain the, uh, the diversity, the microbiome in that whole system, and you know, whether or not the, um, the cryptic sump was a, uh, was a good idea. So, and, um, yeah, so we've got a lot of data that, um, that I got back from you guys and, and I kind of like wanted to, um, you know, go through that. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut up for now. And, um, yeah, but, um, the, I mean, the, Eli, do you want to uh, add anything to all that? Yeah. The, the slides that you made, uh, comparing these three are really great. Uh, Keith's put together these slides that kind of show, you know, different figures from the, uh, for, from the reports comparing all three samples. Um, and boy, hearing you talk about that that tank before you um, before you did anything to it, uh, adds some context for thinking about what that community looks like in in that original tank. I'm struck by just how much of the Vibrionaceae group you had in this group in this uh, so, pre sample. Should I? Uh, so you want me to show the um, community composition? If you can show them, yeah, I think it's I think it's useful. We'll get into here's the uh, community composition. So this is the uh, I got I got the pretest of Rubbermaid and the post-test all lined up in here. And so go ahead, Eli. You were talking about specific. So yeah, the, the pretest, as I recall, um, shows a really high um, Vibrionaceae composition, right? Yep. Um, so kind of a purple pinkish down at the bottom of the figure. Um, and so this is a group that we pay a lot of attention to because it includes a lot of pathogens. Which is not to say your sample had pathogens, but that family, the Vibrionaceae, includes all the Vibrio and all the uh, photobacteria. Um, so some important pathogens. Um, but you know, it's not a problem to have it in a tank. Um, these, this group, uh, they're physically associated with um, the surface of animals, um, especially cnidarians like corals. And so, if you have a tank with a high coral biomass in it, I expect to see high Vibrionaceae. Uh, contribution uh, to the community. Some of the coral farms that I've um, gotten samples from really exemplify this. You know, maybe up to half of, of the community could be mm, this group. Wow. Um, so that was just what was uh, coming into my mind when you were talking about how how overgrown those coral colonies were. Yep. Um, this this really looks like a community of you know, uh, a microbial community associated with uh, a thriving coral reef community. So let's um, now talk about the Rubbermaid uh, tub sample. So it's it's a lot different in terms of um, what that composition looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, forgive me, I'm going to plug in the computer. I don't have to move anything, so I don't think this is going to cause a problem. <laughs> I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Making sure you got it on power. I just got that little warning about. Oh boy, it's going to hibernate mode, and I said, "Let's make sure, let's make sure we catch it before yeah. anybody goes hibernate." Yeah, we don't want you to hibernate, there, Eli. Up, oh. <laughs> we lost them. <laughs> Reconnecting. Eli. 
Yep, we got you back. We actually recovered. Excellent. Great. Okay, yeah, shouldn't be any problems now. We're we're plugged in. Cool. Um, Make sure the little message went away. Yeah. Sorry about this. I'm so much better with uh, other kinds of technology. <laughs> Not video communications, apparently. There we go. All right. There's the... There's the little indicator I was looking for. Okay, all right. We're so back. back to uh, community composition. So we had yeah. we had all that uh, uh, vibrio, and now um, there's a lot less of that in the Rubbermaid tub. In fact, I I barely see any of it. Absolutely, yeah. So the Rubbermaid tub, this one um, really dominated by uh, Rhodobacteraceae, right? Is that showing up the same on your screen? Yeah. The big orange. Yeah. Group? Yeah. So uh, this this family. Again, one of the normal uh, parts of the reef microbiome, uh, the Rhodobacteraceae, are, are surface-associated uh, microbes. So they're the major component of the biofilm. Um, so not talking here about animal surfaces, but rather the surfaces of rocks, the surfaces of the glass, um, plastic pipes, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so... Uh, in this sample, as you may recall, we didn't get a lot of data from your water filter sample. We have sort of an incomplete picture of what that that water looked like in the in the Rubbermaid tub. So we're mostly here looking at the um, the biofilm okay. that was in. The, yeah. Yeah. So definitely less of the less of the vibrio um, in this in this community. So now you know in in terms of the post. Um, of, of the uh, of the 187 gallon display tank. After yeah. I did all that, you know, moving right. around in terms of rock going from the display into the uh, cryptic sump and and the carob seed life rock going from the river made into the display tank, it seems to be a lot more well balanced. And uh, is Absolutely. that is that a um, does that surprise you or is that something that you would expect given tasks that uh, or given the scenario that uh, I described before? Yeah, I mean, given. What you described, the the length of time that you put these rocks through um, and the care that you took with them, you know, this wasn't just an overnight thing, dumping a bunch of bacteria and nutrients and throw them in the tank. It, it took some time. Um, what we see in these communities is a process of um, community succession. You know, you start off with some of the early groups that, that come to dominate the community early. Um, and I think of these as kind of analogous to grass or shrubs in a terrestrial community. You know, if you go out and clear cut an area, it'll 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 start with grass and it'll progress to shrubs and eventually progress to a, a mature old growth forest community. Right. And that forest community will be very stable and will last in that condition for a long time. Um, my point in that analogy is just to talk about that there are some early groups and some later groups. Right. Well, what we see in these microbial communities is um, it takes some time for this balance to, to happen in the community. You, early on, you frequently have a community that's dominated by one or two groups, and they'll be characteristically kind of early groups, things like Rhodobacteraceae and some other groups that we haven't seen much of in your tank. Um, but in a mature tank, we see, a, as, as you were saying, kind of a balance among the different groups. And, and kind of a characteristic pattern where the major families are the same in every, in every mature reef tank we look at. You know, we have, we have Pelagibacteraceae, that pink group. We have Rhodobacteraceae, that orange group. 
we should have some Vibrio Naceae, this kind of pink purple group down at the bottom. And up at the top, we should have a red band for the Altera Monodaceae. Uh, so there's this, this handful of major families um, that's really characteristic of, of a mature reef tank. And, and we're seeing that in, in this tank that you've, you've achieved by carefully growing the, the microbes over a, a span of months. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously this is a sample of one. Right. I mean, it's just one, sure. it's just sure. one reef tank, but, um, you yeah. know, to me, what it, what it, what it says to me is that, and, and we're going to look at a, a, a bunch of other data here, but I'm just, um, kind of, um, want to say a couple of things based on the community composition. You yeah. know, one to me is that, um, longer, the better, no matter what you're talking about with a reef tank, you know? So in terms of like, um, cooking rock in established tank water, you know, can can you accomplish those goals in two weeks, in four weeks, in six weeks? I mean, I, I cooked it for six months. And again, I'm a sample of yeah. one. So I'm not going to like say, right. you know, people cook your rock for six months because it worked for me. Right. Um, based on what you've seen, have, have you seen um, any similar types of data with this sort of uh, scenario in terms of people like cooking live or, or cooking dry rock to make it live rock? And, um, you know, if so, have, have you seen success with people doing it for a much shorter period of time? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I can't think of anybody else who's done, you know, maybe somebody in the comments is going to call me out and say, hey, I, I actually did that. Um, I, I can't recall anyone who's done this experiment of sort of seeding rock that initially doesn't have a a microbial community, um, seeding it and growing that, you know, over, over a period of of time like this. What I can think of is at least one other example of somebody who had kind of a similar a similar goal, that is to transfer a microbial community intact from an existing tank um, to a new tank. Um, and uh, mutual friend uh, Andy or Lexenbert, you might know him yep. as, uh, you know, he transferred he transferred his his microbial community to a new tank really impressively in a, in a short span of time. Um, so kind of a contrast on the timing point, um, but the same overall goal of, you know, transfer the community intact using rock and water from the original, uh, from the original tank. Um, yeah. At some point I would love to sit down and really compile the data that we have in hand to answer questions like that. Cause you know, when I, when I get asked a question like that, we're relying on my memory, but yeah. of course, if I could sit and look at the thousand or so samples we've tested, there may be a half a dozen that we could put a, put a good story together. Now, you know, the other thing I should say is that, um, with, with all the tra transfers in terms of pulling all those mature colonies out and, and, um, transferring them to, to the frag tanks that were plumbed into the system, bragging the crap out of a lot of the corals and, um, planting new frags into the display mm -hmm. tank. I mean, uh, you know, knock on wood, I've had maybe one colony, my Tyree Icefire Aganata, which, is, you know, got a little pissed off. And, um, you know, I lost a little bit of that. But, uh, it, you know, it's it's um, I've still got a good chunk of that and, and a few frags that, um, that are in the in the system. So I didn't totally lose it. But, um, yeah. you know, other than that, everything is really pretty darn darn healthy. What um, what what also does that potentially say to us in terms of cryptic sumps. You know, I, I don't know how uh, much experience you have in terms of working with cryptic sumps. This is the first time I've ever um, utilized a cryptic sump. Mm, but yeah. um, just the concept to me makes a lot of sense in terms of the more um, 
area that you could have for bacteria to colonize in, in, in the better. So yeah. I think um, for me, it's it's uh, it's been working. Yeah, it's it's you know an idea that's been proposed by a lot of really smart people in the hobby, um, and and put to work by many of them. Um, I haven't I haven't done any systematic testing of cryptic sumps, and it's not something I've deliberately explored myself. I'll say that all of my sumps have what I think of as a cryptic area in them. Yeah, you know, a big area of live rock that's. Um, not lit at all. You know, it's it's dark and parts of it have quite low flow. Um, but I think that people who really get into cryptic sumps do it a bit more deliberately than than I have. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about yours. Um, what did you do with the cryptic sump um, beyond what I just described? That is just a dark corner of of yourself yeah you know like i like i mentioned in the beginning it's a um it's a two foot by two foot by two foot polyurethane tank cube that um mm. you know so it's all um it's black so there's absolutely okay. no light that gets into it whatsoever um i have a um i've got about 110 pounds of the haitian lamp rock in there and uh yeah. i don't do a darn thing to it i yes. um i just basically um i can't remember who but somebody recommended this um this very simple overflow device that you can attach to the um to the drain line on the inside so it's it's just got a little screen on the top maybe yep. it's um you know it's like a little rectangle shape that um i would say is like probably two inches wide by six inches long and it's got a screen on the top so before the water goes into the drain it goes through that little um, screen but there's really not um, anything in there to, to screen out. You know, there's nothing, you know, I'll, I'll look at it every now and then. Um, but um, it, there's really nothing that it's catching because it, there's yep. no algae in there. There's there's no nothing. So um, how about flow rate? Is your whole turnover going through it or is it kind of a no, a, I've got a, a um, I think what I've got on there is a, um, a mag five pump. Um, I want to say it's about 400 gallons per hour and okay. it was, it was definitely complicated to plummet into my existing sump. You know, I, um, I, yeah. I basically have the, um, the return pump in the sump. And, um, so that, that is, um, near my, my other return pumps. So it's a separate pump. And then, mm -hmm. uh, what I did was the drain line. This was tricky. I, um, I, I have my, um, I have a, a Royal exclusive dream box and it's hard plumbed. So I have, okay. um, I've got several different drains. And so I, um, I spliced it into one of those, uh, PVC drains, which, um, was some very technical PVC, uh, work. Yeah, that sounds. And I was, uh, I was a little, uh, I, w I was worried because I, you know, I, I've never done that before and I, I didn't know yeah. how it was going to impact the rest of the, uh, the system. So it's a, it's a bit of a, uh, a Frankenstein setup in terms of yeah. the, uh, the plumbing and the way it's working, but, uh, you know, knock on wood so far, so good. Yeah. Cool. So have you, have you opened it up to see, do you have a massive uh, growth of sponges in there? I got to like take a really uh, closer look. I got to, I, you know, I, yeah. I think I do have, um, there is a lot of, um, there, there does seem to be a lot of life in there, but um, yeah, I gotta, I gotta take a much closer uh, look and, and yeah, that that's one of the things that I think is really interesting and potentially powerful about about cryptic sumps is getting a, a high biomass of sponge growing in there because they're such effective filters. You know, it's a, they're going to interact with the bacterial community and pull nutrients out of the water, pull bacteria out of the water. Um, 
Yeah. And eventually I would expect quite a high biomass to be in there. Yeah. You know, that's interesting because, um, my, uh, my nutrients on that tank are not very high. And, uh, I think yeah. one reason is because the corals were, were certainly acting as a, you know, absorbing, you know, some of the nitrates and the phosphates in that system. I did, I did right. not have any, um, um, I, I used to have a, uh, a Cato reactor going and I, I yeah. took that offline and I basically have been dosing bacteria in that system. I, um, I did recently put the, um, the Cato reactor back online, but instead of putting Cato in there, I put some screening material and I've turned it into a, uh, a do it yourself, um, algae scrubber. So it's a, uh, oh, cool. it's a, it's a, it's a reactor, but it's, it's turned into a, a, a scrubber. So it's, nice. uh, it's, it's doing its job, but, uh, that's interesting because, my nitrates in that system are around um, two and a half parts per million, and my phosphates have been pretty close to zero. And, and, yeah, and that's, gotcha. that's um, you know, so I've been dosing a lot of phosphate to keep the uh, the phosphate up. Yeah, well, this is this is worth talking about. So that's interesting. Um, very low nutrients, but you have macroalgal growth that is probably controlling the nutrients. And I'm hearing and, that right. Yeah, and I think also the yeah. bacteria dosing. Yeah. Yeah. And so if I recall right, of course, we got the results here, but uh, I believe you've you've pretty consistently had uh, lower nitrifying communities than many tanks. Um, so I think. Um, Should I show the uh, nitrifying uh, ammonia nitrite? Yeah, that would be that would be great. So we don't have to go off my memory. Hey, it looks like my memory was not very accurate. Yeah, yeah no, you had, you had pretty typical nitrifying communities. Yeah. So I'm looking at yeah, I'm okay. showing the ammonia. Yep. Yeah. Oxidizing. Microbes. Yeah. So it looks like um, I have in front of me the. Uh, sorry, actually, let me pull up the one that you made. That'll be better. Yeah. Because um, you had them all side by side. Uh, James Scott, where did I get the black box for this cryptic sump? Um, it it, it uh, you know I did a video about the cryptic sump, so I think if you uh, if you just um, search that or else you could even uh dm me i could i could send you that uh that link um unless i could find it right now and put it in the chat hang on one second see what i could do here we're both searching there eli yeah yeah and you know what i think i i think i do have um a, a update to point out here um so it looks like maybe when you put this together uh you may recall that the pre-test the first time we ran that sample, we didn't get as much um, data as I would like. Yes. That is um, just the the number of DNA sequences wasn't as high as I would like. So we reran that one, and that one was successful in rerunning it. Um, so if you look at the, the uh, updated one, um, it actually shows a higher nitrifying community than what is shown in your combined slide. I hadn't realized that until... Uh, just this moment. It actually looks very similar to the post-test. The pre-test community of nitrifiers looks very similar to the post-test. If you look at the updated... Are we looking, uh, at, uh, are we looking at the ammonia oxidizing microbes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Both both groups, the ammonia oxidizing microbes and the nitrite oxidizing microbes. So the, the combined figure that you're showing kind of suggests that it increased... Right. The, right. The so what, what does the um, so what does the color coding mean? You know, so I see in the pretest, it's it's kind of like that um, 
that mustard color, gold yeah. color, and then it's red, and then it's green. Yeah. So, so I mean, I'm I'm generally trying to go with the color scheme of you know green is good and and red is bad and yellow is in between. Um, so so green for ammonia oxidizing microbes indicates that you have a high enough level. Um, off the top of my head, I don't remember where I drew the threshold, um, but you can see that the value that is the threshold for what makes it green versus versus red. But you can see that the value the the level of this group in your post test, uh -huh. that is the your frequency number, is within the normal range. So that typical range of numbers that's shown right next to it, yep. that's the tenth to the ninetieth percentile. So right? and yours is sort of right in the middle of that. So a very normal level of ammonia. Hey Amanda. Oxide. Hey Amanda, what's happening? So Amanda Meckley is wondering, um, you know, what determines the typical range of a reef tank? How is that determined? Is it, you're basically it's based off of the norms in your database. Great. Yeah. Important question. Yeah. So um, it's based on what's in the database with some um, some careful filtering for data quality. So you know we have a we have a large number of samples in the database, and they're not all normal reef tanks. Some of them are experimental tanks. Some of them aren't reef tanks at all. So we kick out things that aren't normal. You know, we know these are not normal. Um, we also kick out uh, samples that we didn't get good data for. You know, there's there's occasional failed samples in the database. So after trimming all that stuff out, we have this data set now of just the, the high quality data from normal healthy reef tanks. That's the data set that I use to determine um, all of these kind of normal things in the report. So when we compare to the normal community, that's that's the database that we're looking at. When we compare to the range of a particular level, like ammonia oxidizers, that's where we get that range. So uh, Eli, what, is, what does this say then? So basically for the nitrifying uh, community, I'm, I'm also gonna look at the uh, one for um, for nitrite, and it looks like that was in right. the, uh, the green for all three of them. But um, you yeah. know, going back to the um, the nitrifying community for the uh, for the ammonia oxidizing yeah. microbes, what what does that say in terms of you know before I did this whole thing, you know it was um, I guess kind of like in a neutral zone, and and then it got you know with the Rubbermaid tub it was like in this red zone, but then post everything it um, it seems to have uh, improved. How would you just well? So that's go ahead. That's that's the that's the clarification I need to make is that the um, that yellow coated one that you're looking at, yeah, um, the the pretest that's yellow coated, that was based on low coverage data. Okay. And so it, I I'm sorry I should have caught this before our call today. I'm I'm looking here at the uh, the full reports which are in your in your folder on the website. Yeah. And so I so I happened to notice that there was this updated one, right? And oh, okay. I, I pulled up. So the the real story the real story if you pull up that updated one, you'll see that it actually has almost an identical level. It's 0 0.021. That's the level of ammonia oxidizing in the pretest for the the updated data set. Okay. And, and boy, that's almost exactly the same number, right? It, your post test we have 0 0.025. Right. Very, very similar level. Um, about 2% of the community is ammonia oxidizers, both pre and, and post test, um, which I think makes a lot more sense. It's a lot more intuitive than the result that we would have to try to understand how could it be increasing. Right, 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 right. By the same um, a couple of quick um, questions from the viewers. Um, 
Rashindra Bachu, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, hopefully. Um, how long would a sample be good shipping from Trinidad and Tobago? Could could yeah, they do yeah, that? Yeah, important question. So um, the, the way that we have people ship samples is as a sterilized and uh, dried filter. So it's really kind of a, a, a pretty stable material at that point. If you were to ship me water, it wouldn't last even within the US. Um, you know, but the way that we take these samples, yeah, they're, they're quite stable. Um, of course, that relies on you, you know, following the instructions properly, taking the sample and preserving it properly. But in principle, I don't have concerns within the time span of, say, a few weeks. Um, when we get the samples back here in the lab, I pop them in the freezer because it can't hurt. Um, freezer is always best for long-term storage. And I advise clients to also store your samples in the freezer if you're hanging on to them for a few days before you ship them. Um, but I'm not worried at all about a couple of weeks uh, during shipping. Yeah. Um, so Amanda's got another question. Um, does Eli have the ability to input typical, typical range based on specific systems? I'm not exactly sure. Um, so maybe she's thinking of sort of um, what's the typical range for a reef tank? What's the typical range for a fowler? What's the typical range for a, a frag tank versus a... They also, um, so, so um, Amanda and, and Chris Meckley, they, uh, they own um, ACI Aquaculture, which is a commercial um, coral farming um, operation down in Florida. So maybe perhaps she's wondering whether there can be, uh, uh, I guess, norms yeah. for uh, commercial operations. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that in principle, if we have enough of them in the, in the database, in principle, something like that is possible. Um, it is not at all implemented right now. You know, right now I don't have like a checkbox you can choose, compare me to this kind of tank or compare me to that kind of tank. But in, in principle, the data are there and we could ask those, those kind of questions. Uh, let's say it's on the to-do list. Um, yeah. So uh, a couple of questions also about your um, live uh, reef rubble and, and sand. Al Al yeah. Alec Fellows is wondering, would your live reef rubble have a benefit to a 20 gallon reef tank that has been running seven months? Started with rock pulled from my uh, local fish store sump and carob seed live sand. And um, gotcha. and then there's another question from um, James Scott just wants you to talk more about the live sand. So maybe, yeah, given that uh, we, we've been talking about yeah. my situation, could you, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, debrief everybody on those yeah, two so products? I'm, I'm seeing your situation as, um, as pretty different than uh, the proposal that we just heard. That is, you had this mature microbial community in your tank and, and you, um, you cultivated that community on some additional rock. Is, is that a fair way of thinking about yeah. it? In other words, you're transferring an existing community. Right. Um, I wanted, I know, wanted to maintain or, yeah. or possibly augment what I had. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing from this, this question is more about kind of enhancing, you know, supplementing a, a community. So talking about supplementing a community, um, my suggestion, if you have an existing tank, is to use live sand or mud to supplement the community. And it's not that I don't think live reef rubble will work. I, I think it will. We don't, have, we don't have a solid data set demonstrating that live reef rubble or any other live rock, when added to a tank, will make a big difference in that community. My prediction is it will. Um, and I think many of us have done things like this and seen anecdotal results. 
Um, but the experiments we've done show that live sand and mud, if you add them to an existing established tank, will have quite a dramatic effect on the community. Um, in contrast, if you're starting a tank, we do have good data showing that live rock, um, and specifically the same material that we sell, that we use for our live refrable, um, has, has a really dramatic effect on establishing a new community in a tank. Um, so I'm not saying it won't work. We sell lots of live refrable to people who want to use it for that purpose, and I think it's a good use of it. I'm just trying to be careful about saying what I have evidence for. And what I have evidence for is live sand and mud will help an established tank, and live rock or rubble will help a new tank. It may be and probably is that both materials are useful in both situations. Gotcha. Um so okay let's um let's 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 look at some more of the uh the the, the data there uh eli and, and sure, in yeah. terms of um you know so there's there's all this uh data about diversity and uh, balance is there anything i'm showing the diversity data pre-test rubbermaid and post-test is there anything that we haven't really kind of touched on well you know there's there's one you've you've described a great success in this in this story you know um breaking down a tank set uh rebooting it in a new tank i think many of us have done something like that you know whether it's transferring to a new tank or replacing oh, I've, I've done that and i've screwed it up you know right. yeah it, it can go really bad right so i think you've told a you've told a great success story here and i think one piece that we haven't talked about is what's missing that is we found no sign of any pathogens in your tank yeah let me show the and, uh coral pathogens yeah, so he's got these great, you know, empty tables across the board, and that's the that's the known coral pathogens. That's the one people people have written papers about and proven. You know, this thing is a coral pathogen; it causes. This now, I disease. thought I had um, a decent concentration of the vibrio, um, that one vibrio um, in in the um, uh, the composition, community composition uh, analysis. So, so the family at the family level, absolutely. You've got a lot of Vibrionaceae, but it turns out not to be the pathogenic. Types, oh, okay. Gotcha. Right? So, you know, that's a family. Um, and I, I haven't, I haven't put together a list of the species from yours. Unfortunately, most of, most of it, most of the Vibrios that show up in our samples are, uh, are not identified to the species level. It's a very, very diverse family. And so, um, we find them, they're exactly the same DNA sequencer, sequence that some other researcher has found before. And we find it in your tank. But that thing doesn't have a species name. It's Vibrio species, right? Um, that's the case for most of the stuff in, in yours. They're not, um, they're not known pathogens. Um, so yeah, that table that you're showing, you know, that, that says none of the known pathogens are there, but but what I'm even more struck by is none of the suspected pathogens showed up in your tank either. So this Caribbean disease, SCTLD, uh, stony coral tissue loss disease, um, some of these pathogens are suspected pathogens that are associated with this disease. They're quite prevalent in the hobby. 15 to 20% of tanks hmm. have any one of these pathogens. It, that is, you could make that statement for each pathogen on the list. Your tank didn't have any of them. And so um, when we talk about the success of your story, transferring both the corals and the microbiome from one tank to another, um, important to recognize that, that feature, 
you know, an, another tank that was full of coral pathogens or suspected pathogens might have seen much more uh, mortality in the corals um, during all the stress. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure we talked about this, um, you know, when you were on um, a couple of times before. But um, can, can you just review with us, uh, Eli, in terms of how, you know, it is possible to pick up one of these coral pathogens? And then, um, you know, the yeah. second part of my question would be how to treat them. Yeah. So um, coral pathogens are often transmitted in water. Um, certainly, if you certainly, I guess it goes without saying, if you buy a chunk of coral, that coral, you know, that coral frag could have in it a coral pathogen. But, but in fact, even just the water, right? Just the water clinging to rocks, mm. the water in associated with the coral mucus. Um, yeah. A, a drop of water from that bag could have coral pathogens wow. in it. Um, so they're both they're both surface or water associated. What what can we do about them? Um, well, we have a huge range of tools for killing bacteria, but the problem is killing specific bacteria, yeah. right? And so I'm not generally a fan of uh, you know widespread use of antibiotics as a preventative measure. Um, so I'm, I'm not advocating that people, you know, nuke their tanks with antibiotics. I'm not advocating that they do s strong antibiotic dips on every coral frag that they ever buy. Um, but what I would, what I would say, let's be aware of the, the prevalence of bacterial coral, coral pathogens in the hobby. Um, the SCTLD bugs are very prevalent. All the others less so. But we have found a handful of other. So you call them um, uh, bugs. I mean, that's just they're bacteria, though. Yeah, just um, yeah, colloquially, informally, <laughs> bugs. Yeah, um, yeah. So they're all members of the Rhodobacteraceae, these SCTLD-associated bacteria. That is their surface, their biofilm uh, community. Um, so they could come in on a rock, uh, and we have seen them occasionally in batches of live rock. We've seen coral pathogens show up in batches of live rock that don't have any visible corals in them, but there's there's a coral pathogen in the water. And and uh, is pretty much the uh, the signs that you might perhaps have one of these um, um, pathogens, RTN, STN, in terms of uh, Aquapora. So the uh, SCTLD, we don't we don't have a really good idea of the range of corals that it affects. Um, this is a funny kind of unfortunate lack of intersection between the hobby and the research. Um, so the research on this disease is all in the Caribbean and there are no Caribbean corals in the hobby. I mean, by law, there cannot be any Caribbean corals in the hobby. Um, and so, you know, there's no papers published on the corals that we care about and this disease. We're really breaking new ground here when we even ask the question, can this bacterium affect this coral? Because it, it's not an issue that's happening out there in the research world. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I lost my train of thought. Uh, well, we going? got a couple other questions here, but um, um, Real Slacker is wondering, does UV or ozone have a dramatic effect on, on these uh, pathogens? So UV... I, Ozone, I don't know much about because we don't have enough people in our enough samples in our database um, 
that that have ozone in use uh, to be able to ask those questions. But UV, we've looked at pretty extensively because um, it's a great case where lots of people use UV and lots of people don't use UV. So we have a nice database to compare the two. The two and groups. on my system, I use UV. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And so I would love to know what's different about the UV on your system versus other systems. It's got to be something about the combination of the power, right? The number of watts and the flow rate and something about the plumbing, you know? Yeah, that's that. There's a lot of variables when you're using UV, you know, there really are. Yeah. So across the database, without knowing any of those variables, just simply putting every every sample into it's UV plus or UV minus. We have there's a huge effect of UV on the microbial community as a whole. And the best place to see it is the Pelagibacteraceae, this pink group that showed up. It showed up in your samples, um, both pre and post. Um, actually, more of it post than in the pre sample, if I recall. Uh, which, um, which one, uh, Eli? Which group? Well, let me let me pull these up and make sure I'm remembering correctly. I think I, so I had a lot pink, more in the pre, the pink. It's a pink pink one um is it more in the pre no so we're looking for the light pink one. Oh, uh, okay the, the light the, pink one i'm sorry yep the pink purple one at the bottom is vibrionacea gotcha. this kind of pale pink one that should be kind of in the middle of the bar gotcha um shows up very low levels in your pre yep. but in your post it shows up at higher levels yeah. still lower than normal but but high yep. or you know high enough to detect right it's there so reason I focus in on this group here is just because if you're talking about effects of UV, that's by far the biggest effect of UV we see is a 20-fold reduction on average in the level of Pelagibacteraceae. And in fact, it really is more striking than that. It's over 90% of tanks that use UV have no detectable members of this family. Now, that family is the most abundant on a natural reef, and in mature reef tanks, it often rises to be the dominant family. Um, so that's a big that's a big impact on the community. Um, so I'm uh, that that's one of the things that I like to point out when the subject of UV comes up anytime is um, it has a huge impact on the community and some of that impact may not be what you're trying for. Right. Now does it help with pathogens and parasites? I think there's a lot of people who have been in the hobby longer than me who have had, you know, measurable success using it to knock out some of the parasites. And so I don't want to step in and say, well, that can't be true. I mean, you've got people with years of experience saying it worked for them. Here's what I'll say. We find both parasites and pathogens in systems that are using UV. I haven't done an analysis to say, is it a higher or level lower, but uh, higher or lower level, but it's certainly not. It's certainly not the case that if you have UV in your system, there's never any pathogens or parasites. Um, we we often do see them showing up in systems with UV. I say use it if you feel that your system calls for it. If if you as a hobbyist find it a useful tool, you have some experience um, saying that it'll help you with whatever disease you're you're dealing with. I say use use that tool. Um, but I just like to bring up the um, the side effects. It it has a big impact on the microbial community. So using it preventatively may not be the best idea. Do you have any? Certainly not if you want a natural uh, microbial community. Do you have any data or, or any conclusions that you can draw from um, 
systems that use UV in terms of fish pathogens? Is, is, it, uh, is it reducing the fish uh, pathogens? I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm using UV is like uh, my understanding right. is that it will help to, um, you know, on that front a little bit. Are you thinking parasites or pathogens now? That is um, um, bacteria I guess any, or non I guess anything free-floating that can be a, uh, yeah. something that could uh, impact the fish. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I definitely see both categories in in tanks that are using UV. That is, I see fish bacterial pathogens just today sent out an email about that. There was one sample that, that had that. Guy was using UV and had two fish pathogens in a sample. So, and, I, and I've certainly seen some cases where they have something like ick, you know, well-known, a uh, cryptocarrion, well-known parasite in the sample and they're using UV. Um, but again, I don't want to make some claim that it doesn't reduce levels um, because I haven't done the, I haven't done the experiment to monitor over time. Yeah, you know, I've I've had some mysterious losses um, in my tank with fish over mm. um, the last uh, I want to say six to eight months. I, I used to have three wrasses in that tank, and I lost all three. You know, just kind of um, yeah. you know over time, and and um, yeah. you know it started with like a kind of color fading, and 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 um, you know then they uh, they perish. So um, I think I lost. Um, I also lost a cell fin tank, kind of like a similar type of uh, situation where it was just, it, it lost its color and then, um, you know, kind yeah. of slowly but surely it, it, it died off. And yeah. so, um, I don't know, it, um, I, I, there, I, I guess there's definitely some sort of pathogen in there that um, impacted those uh, fish, but I haven't had any uh, losses in the last, I want to say, yeah. 30 to 60 days. Yeah. Yeah. And so we sure didn't see any bacterial pathogens in your tank. I was looking back at your record and it looks like we did test your tank prior to all of this. Right. And we did run a, a tank DNA test on your on your tank before all of right. this. Um, I don't remember exactly where that falls in the timetable, but it's before this stuff. Um, and I recall, didn't we find an unusual yeah, path, uh, parasite? Right. Yeah, you, you did. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. I think that was the only parasite that we saw in your sample. Um, but it's, uh, it's a really odd one. And maybe this is a good time to segue into that other discussion about the unexpected, mysterious parasites that show up. Um, yeah, so we didn't find ick in your sample, right? We didn't no. find you know, any of the usual. But what we found was this this thing called a mixazone. Mixazones are, are a complete oddball. They turn out to be a member of the cnidarians. That is the group that is anemones, jellyfish, and all these other corals, right? Um, but mixazones, they're, uh, they're microscopic. So think of it as a microscopic jellyfish that lives inside fish blood. That's what it is, an internal parasite of, uh, of fish. And they have a complex life cycle, um, at least some of them do, um, where they go from fi a fish host to a worm host hmm. and then back to the fish host. And so that's a, that's a question that I have for this new observation. I've never read about mixazones in the hobby, but we've seen them in a half dozen tanks now. Um, that's a new, it's a question for this new observation. Are we seeing a worm infection or a fish infection? We know this species infects both worms and fish, but in your tank was, you know, was it a worm infection or a fish infection? I don't think we ever swabbed any of your fish, no, did we? No, no, yeah. no. 
that's that's what I'm trying to get people to do if they have one of these really interesting new parasites. Like, let's swab the fish and confirm that, you know, this parasite infects this fish because often we don't know. Right, and uh, you, we didn't see that in the, uh, in the latest test, right? You didn't see that fish uh, pathogen did... Uh... So looking at, your, looking at your record here, and forgive me, I'll look back to make sure I'm saying the right thing. I only see one time that we've done a tank DNA oh, test. Oh, right, 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 right. We didn't do the tank DNA. And that right, was yeah. October of 2021. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Gotcha. So, yeah, these, these parasites, uh, because they're eukaryotes, um, they show up only on the tank DNA test. Um, it's two totally different right. processes in the lab to, to analyze the prokaryotes versus the eukaryotes. Um, um, so perhaps that contributed to some of the fish deaths yeah, that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Mills, thank you so much for that uh, super chat. Uh, his question is, what is a, a rough time it takes to get a similar level of biodiversity of mature tanks, starting with dry rock, but adding live sand, mud, rubble? months, years. Yeah. Great. So um, this was, I guess, a couple of things I want to say about this. First, when I started in the hobby as as a coral biologist thinking I was going to come in and have clean tanks with just my coral in it, I failed spectacularly, like every, every other hobbyist who tries to start a sterile tank. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I entered this as a skeptic about live rock. I thought this was some voodoo that they, some snake oil they were selling, you know, and I pretty, pretty quickly was convinced by experience that there was something to it, that, that this mattered, you know, I, I give that background just to say that really I was a skeptic at the beginning and I had to be convinced by the data. So, so what were the data? Well, the first piece of data I had was the observation that we've all had where we, we try it both ways and it works one way. Um, the other piece of data was, uh, when I first set up the lab and first started aquabiomics, I did this series of experiments with, um, I think exactly what the what the caller is, is asking about here. Sorry, the um, I don't know what we call them in this. Uh, the viewer. The, the, person with the question. The viewer. There you go. Uh, so I started these tanks in a variety of ways: dry rock or uh, dry rock with some some seeded material some live reef rubble. And really, I used exactly the same material that we're uh, using uh, to prepare live reef rubble now. And we got a comparable level of diversity within one month. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I can I can put a number on it with those uh, with those conditions around it, right? With this material in these kind of tanks, they were uh, 20 gallon tanks. Um, replicated experimental 20 gallon tanks um and we started them with i don't remember the the amount of live reef rubble but it was a it was a relatively small amount the idea was to seed it not to create an aquascape you know and yeah within a month we got measure we got uh diversity that was on par with an established tank it was about the it was about the median that is about the average um for an established tank after about a month. We also got measurable levels of both ammonia and nitrite oxidizers. So to me, that was like, okay, we're, we're good. We've got the average diversity and we've got a complete uh, nitrifying community. Gotcha. Um, a couple more questions here from Mike Hoppe. This is uh, going back to what we're talking about in terms of potentially preventing pathogens from entering the, uh, the tank, coral pathogens. Yeah. What about using ChemiClean dips to help fight these uh, pathogens? Would uh, would that be something that you could do without um, 
you know, killing off the beneficial bacteria? So, you know, the, the rumor is that that is an antibiotic, right? Is it erythromycin? Yes. Is that, that is the yeah. uh, scuttlebutt. Yeah. Yeah. And so I haven't seen the data myself, but so many people who know about this stuff believe that, that I'm, I'm ready to take it. it. It makes sense based on what it does in tanks, right? Um, so I think, I think dose matters with all of these things, you know, and perhaps ChemiClean, perhaps the manufacturers have done enough testing that, that we collectively can say that that's a safe dose, what they're recommending. I personally don't have the experience with ChemiClean to, um, to say yes or no, whether to use it in any context. I just haven't, just don't have the experience, but, but I know that there's a lot of good experience in the hobby with it. Um, I think my head's, I'll go ahead. You're going to finish. As an antibiotic, I guess I just wanted to, to finish by saying, if, 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 we, if we assume the rumor is true that it is, in fact, an antibiotic at some safe dose, then I think it's a reasonable suggestion right, to, to use that as a dip. And I, I guess I just wanted to broaden it a bit to say that I think that an appropriate antibiotic at an appropriate dose is, is a, a generally reasonable thing to do for a dip. I wouldn't like to see people doing that as a um, as a uh, a treatment to the whole tank. Yeah, because I think you're on the risk of introducing antibiotic resistant or selecting for antibiotic resistance. But a safe dose of an appropriate antibiotic as a dip, I think this is a strategy that makes sense. I think my only concern about doing that is that um, you know I'll whenever I bring in a new um, frag SPS frag, I'll do a dip in uh, potassium chloride. So um, yeah. to make sure that, um, you know, it doesn't have any uh, acrimonic flatworms on it. Uh, right. But then, you know, I, I would be concerned about putting the frag through another dip, you know, and, and stressing out that coral with uh, with too much dipping. I, I guess that's something that we would have to uh, see by experimenting in terms of whether yeah. or not the frags would, uh, would uh, get really pissed off. But I guess that would be one of my concerns. Yeah, and, and I share that concern. I mean, coming from the coral side of things, absolutely. I share that concern. My own practice is to, pre, to be pretty gentle with dips. Um, yeah, I, I like potassium chloride as my go-to safe coral it's dip. It's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I have not lost corals from this dip. Um, uh, for tougher corals, uh, zoas, I'm a fan of hydrogen peroxide, and I'll hit them with a 50 percent uh, wow 50-50 mixture of of three percent that is the off-the-shelf hydrogen peroxide mixed 50-50 with seawater i will soak zoas in that for 15-30 minutes and they're fine wow you know? and it's well and i mean that stuff's horrific um but I, of course i would never i've never put an sps in that you know? right you know uh, going back to potassium chloride I've, I've talked about this before that um you know it's there's there's so many benefits uh to it you know one it's it's not uh potentially you know hazardous to your health like uh the bear sure, yeah. bear and, and you know um insecticide is too it's clear so you could see any pests that are yeah. popping off um but um just the whole concept in terms of um you know in, increasing the um well, i i guess it's it's kind of like sucking the um there's a whole uh, scientific uh, terminology in terms of the, the it's an osmo it's basically the reverse of an osmotic shock is my understanding is yeah. you're sucking yeah, the fluid out right. of the cells or something like that with this uh, with yeah. this dip but um 
I even had great success using it to eradicate, um, I think they're called ACOL, ACOL flatworms. Okay. Yeah. Uh, from yeah. Uh, Ganiapora and Alviapora, which I, I had been hitting those things with, um, you know, pretty much every, uh, not every coral dip. I had a couple of coral dips. Coral RX, I think, was one of them. And there was another coral dip that I was using to try to get rid of these um, these uh, flatworms, these like red planaria like flatworms. And nothing was really, yeah. you know, it was, it was knocking back maybe 75%, but, you know, the rest were just kind of hiding inside the coral skeleton. But, um, man, the KCL. That stuff just that's great. just really yeah. eliminated it. I mean, it's just I guess they, they had yeah. nowhere to hide from the osmotic uh, shock. Yeah, and you know when you're using a safe dip like that, you can afford to leave it in there and you know blast yeah blow some current on it right and and if you're if you're dealing with a dip that stresses the coral out more, you can't afford that kind of time and, and handling. You know, Here, here's a uh, an interesting question from NSB Reefs. What's the best way to reboot your microbiome? Hmm. Well, are we thinking about an? Ex I, I guess I'll interpret the question myself. So we're we're thinking about taking an existing tank and uh, enhancing the microbiome in some way, as as compared to sort of nuking it and starting over. I guess that's the distinction that I want to. Yeah. That's the question I want to ask. Are, are, are we are we nuking it, sterilizing it, or are we talking about preserving what we have and um, adding to it, supplementing? Let's it. Uh, let's go with that uh, with the latter there. Yeah, preserve what you have and and supplement it. So, you know the the data I have say that live sand and mud have a really big impact. So I I, I saw this in a few ways. Okay, I saw that the nitrifying community was enhanced by doing this. Um, the uh, balance and diversity scores were enhanced, and the um, this this group that I'm always talking about, the Pelagibacteraceae, this dominant group, uh, that group was enhanced by the addition of this material. So, several different ways of looking at the community, and all of them improved just by taking live sand and mud, putting it in the. I, in my case, the experiment I did, I put it in a high flow area of the sump. My goal was let's spread this stuff around as much as possible, um, get it suspended in the water and let it cir circulate through the tank. Um, and, and that had a very big effect on the, on the community. Here's an interesting question from Bill Carlson. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what to make of this question, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to hit you up with it. Has Eli identified a healthy ratio of certain bacteria? Um, might that vary based on which corals one might have? And does Eli ever think about bringing in some unusual bacteria not normally found in tanks? So uh, actually, I guess infusing tanks with a uh, certain strain of bacteria, maybe not right. normally in yeah. those tanks. Yeah. So, you know, what is the optimum? What is the optimum microbial community? I mean, that's one way of thinking about this question, talking about this ratio of one bacterium to another. <laughs> sounds like we're talking about what's the ideal community and i think in a lot of ways no i don't have that answer and nobody has that answer um what so what what, what are what are the manufacturers of the bottle bacteria what 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 are they basing those decisions off? i mean obviously they're using certain strains in those uh, bottles and i don't think all of them are forthcoming in terms of what strains they're they're, they're in those that's bottles. right i i would say very few of them uh label what's in the bottles um 
so I haven't I haven't done an extensive survey. You know, there there's probably manufacturers I've never tested any of their products. You know, but I've I've tested a dozen or more different bacterial products on the market. Um, here's what I'll say about them: the 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 components of bottled bacterial products are not the components of a reef tank microbiome. Hmm. If we're drawing a Venn diagram, there's little intersection between those two circles. Hmm. Um, the the viewer can interpret that as as they wish. Um, they adding these products to your tank has an effect on the microbiome of your tank. I've, I've seen I've seen these effects over and over to the point where I can now um, the Fusobacteraceae, a family of a common family of bacteria, shows up as purple on the community plot. Shows up at very low levels in the typical tank. If you do if you dose most bacterial products, you often will will see a, a bloom, an increase of the Fusobacteraceae. They aren't components of what's in the bottle, but they bloom when you put the bottle in your tank. I think a lot of the effects that we see from bottled bacterial products are happening from the nutrients that come along with them. You know, it's a bottle with living bacterial cells in it and also some nutrients that will keep those bacteria alive. Um, and when you put all that stuff in your tank, it doesn't just fuel those bacteria, it also gets chewed up by other bacteria. Um, so yeah, a couple of things I said there, I want to reiterate um, the, the stuff that's in the bottle. We don't see it when we look at the tank in general across the products I've looked at and the stuff that does bloom in tanks that are dosed with um, bottled bacterial products in general, the stuff that does bloom is not stuff that came from the bottle. Um, so again, I, I think that they have effects, but um, I would not say that the manufacturers are going out and saying, well, what grows in a tank? Let me try to cultivate a normal bacterial community. It seems that they're cultivating bacteria that have specific effects. This bacteria will chew up ammonia. This bacteria will degrade um, polysaccharides that make up algal cell walls. And so it'll help up clean up detritus. And so I'm not trying to make a claim that, that it's snake oil. You know, these things have effects, but the effects, in my view, based on the data I've seen, those effects are not based on inoculating bacteria into your tank, which then become a colony. Rather, it's based on adding bacteria to your tank that do something and also adding nutrients to your tank that fuel the growth of of some bacteria. So, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of folks out there. I, you know, I dose bacteria. I think I mentioned I, I dose bacteria sure. and, and there's a lot of other folks that do dose bacteria to mature reef tanks. Um, yep. What, um, well, I guess my question to you is, are, are, do you dose bacteria to your tanks? No. And, and I'll come out and say that in my opinion, the products are overused in the hobby. I think that there is a place for them. And I, you know, I'm enthusiastic for experimentation. Everybody should experiment in whatever way they want to. In my opinion, they are overused in the hobby and in established tanks is probably not the place where I would recommend using them. I see a place for them in, in starting a tank. It's not how I start tanks, but especially for people who are focused on fish, I can see a, a reason for them in, in establishing tanks. 
I can see a reason for them in remediating tanks that have algal, you know, detritus issues yep. and algal growth issues. I know people have had success with them there. Um, but if you're looking to maintain the microbial community in your tank, um, I don't think there's good data saying that they are the way to do it. Do they hurt? I don't think so. And they, I do think they have effects. They, they contain nutrients and they do contain living cells. Um, I just, yeah, the, the community that's growing in your tank, I mean, we've looked at your data and the community that's growing in your tank does not look like the community in the bottle. Right. Yeah. Um, what about the fact that, um, I think this is a scientific fact, that corals do uh, consume bacteria, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's contentious. You'll get coral biologists arguing about it. But yes, I think there's good evidence for it. Um, we know very little about what kind of bacteria they like to eat. Um, but I think there is some, some good evidence from radio labeling experiments that they eat bacteria. They get nutrients um, from, from bacteria. So I think that's an entirely reasonable theory. It's, you know, it, it makes sense to operate under that theory and to test that that idea um perhaps it is beneficial as a coral food yeah, yeah you know um that was that was one of the reasons why i um i decided to keep dosing bacteria you know initially when i started dosing bacteria was to help uh reduce nutrients like nitrates and phosphates you know i wanted to, i wanted to kind of like get off of uh macro and kato yeah i was having a lot of um you know experiences where i kato was crashing it was a little frustrating so uh, I was yeah. able to actually, uh, you know, swap out the Kato for the bacteria dosing, and that was working, you know, cool. for me. So I yeah. think that um, that that you know that's you know that part you mentioned in terms of helping to to uh, control detritus is a uh, yeah. is is definitely been a plus for me. Yeah, and that's you know that that application of it seems to me biologically sound, right? Because you're adding live bacteria that have an activity; they themselves can chew up. Um, can take up nutrients and the nutrients you're adding is also a form of carbon dosing, right? So it's boosting bacterial growth and again, getting nutrient uptake. So yeah, I think that's totally plausible. The, the ones I'm skeptical about are the ones that want to increase diversity by adding a bottle and that bottle might have three types of bacteria in it. I'm like, that's probably not going to, probably not going to increase your diversity by a lot. What about, uh, you mentioned bottled bacteria, you know, that's liquid bacteria. There's other companies that, um, that have uh, dry bacteria. Any, um, any thoughts in terms of dry versus bottled uh, liquid bacteria? Yeah, really interesting, really interesting concept. I've, I've only come across it recently and I haven't done any testing with it. I'll say that, um, I mean, of course it's, it's biologically plausible. You know, it, it is a way that you can um, preserve bacteria. In fact, some of the, some of the bacterial stock companies, when you're ordering bacteria for research, some types of bacteria, that's how they send it to you is basically as a powder. Um, I want to I want to point out that it really restricts what groups. So only some groups of bacteria can form spores, um, but for those groups of bacteria, it should be a, a great way. Yeah, it. Amanda Meckley mentions a remediate, which is a, a dry uh, bacteria um, from um, Captivate Aquaculture, which is what I'm, I've been using the last. Um, few months and I, I think one of the big reasons for me is i live in a in a cold area of vermont in the winter time and so um you know with the liquid bacteria that was my fear it was uh you know it was you know getting into a situation where it might be too cold to ship the bottle bacteria for me so yeah. that's that's sort yeah. of my advantage 
I think that makes a lot of sense because no matter what the um, no matter what the seller claims, you're not you're not ever really confident about how was that liquid handled in between the the factory and your door and uh, a powder form should be should be more stable. I'll tell you, you know, my skepticism about all these things could be solved if we all just tested more of them because in my experience, most of the bacterial types that are in these products are uh, well-studied types. Now that's not universally true. Some of them are completely, I can't find a match anywhere, but they're generally well-studied types classified down to the species level. And so if we had a, you know, if we had a product and we knew it was this one species, um, there would be a wealth of literature that we could read about and say, well, I'm convinced it really will have that activity because there's, you know, there's research papers showing that it does. Well, so we need more, we need more ingredients listed. Yeah, I would, I, you know, I think, um, you know, to, for, for manufacturers to be a lot more forthcoming in terms of what's in their um, products would, would certainly be a big, uh, benefit to all of us. And, you know, I understand in terms of trying to protect, uh, you know, the, uh, the secret sauce there and, and not wanting to kind of sure. give that away. But, um, by the same token, I think, uh, full disclosure is a, uh, is something that, that me as a hobbyist would like to certainly see more of. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I think there's a middle ground, you know, I, I think there's room for manufacturers to preserve their secret sauce while also giving something, you know, maybe the secret sauce is how you, how you grow and preserve those bacteria to to get them to us right i i i don't know i i don't do this but i'm i'm sure there are tricks to it right maybe you can tell us the species and just keep all those other tricks to yourself you're a, you're a scientific guy i um, i've talked about this before but i would love to see a um like a, a third party like a, a a body out there in the hobby where basically would would be able to um certify the methodologies that um, manufacturers use to make their products and kind of like have that, uh, that stamp of approval and, and that, that you know, right. something, something of that nature. And I know that sort of thing costs um, a lot of money, but um, right. it, uh, it would be nice to, to be able to have, you know, something, some sort of organization out there that can kind of um, validate, right. What yeah. the manufacturers are doing and say that their process is valid and, and, and um, yeah. you know, Meets the rigor, meets the rigors of, um, you know, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can envision it at, at lots of levels, you know, from the, the chemical components of products that you're asked to dose in your aquarium to the, the biological components, like what kind of bacteria is in this bottle, all the way up to the livestock. I mean, I, I can imagine genetic certification yes this really is this species oh that'd you know? be awesome uh, yeah of course you know we're not going to do this with uh you know cronus or something no. right a little cheap fish but um you know for some of the high-end corals it, it could be yeah we could we could verify is that really a, a walt disney or not yeah right uh, yeah is that a knockoff? that's <laughs> uh that's a whole nother topic there eli let me tell you that yeah. much the yeah. knockoff uh, topic um so here's another right. uh fish uh, pathogen question from milton uh, english my tank came back negative for fifth fish uh, pathogens i'm assuming he did a, a test with you guys yet i have losses um i remember fish that were uh, emaciated suggesting internal parasites what's uh i want you to comment on that so um so he has observations that say there are sick fish in the tank but we didn't find any right. 
any parasites or pathogens on the test. Yeah, yeah. Um, so without pulling up his results and you know re-reviewing them, I will say that is not that is not uh, it's not the only time we've heard that. You know, it is possible to have a sick fish, and and yet we don't find anything any known parasites or pathogens on the test. It raises a few possibilities. You know, one possibility is the one that I don't want to think about, but you know, let's acknowledge it. Perhaps it's there and we just couldn't detect it for some technical mm. reason. And we could get into a discussion about, you know, what those possible technical reasons are and how we guard against them. But, you know, suffice it to say, we, we do our best to make these tests as sensitive as we know how so that we, we will detect if, it, if it's present. Um, but let's also consider this other possibility. There was a sick fish in the tank, but no DNA from that parasite got into the tube, mm. right? The, the swab that you sent me or the filter that you sent me or whatever did not contain any of the, um, the DNA from that parasite or pathogen. And that's actually, that's actually if, if things are working as they should, that's what I believe, you know, if it was in the sample, we should have detected it. And so how could that be? Well, the fact that there's an infected fish in the tank doesn't necessarily mean that the tank is infected. That is that there is a population of that parasite or pathogen in the tank that is large enough to be detectable and dangerous. Um, so, I'm I'm broadly raising this again. I don't know, Milton, if this is your case. I'd have to sit down and look at, at your specific results again. Um, but broadly, you know, this is this is an option that I want the viewers to consider. Um, negative tests can be meaningful too. You know, if if I tell you that you had enough, if I tell you that the sample worked at a technical level, and we didn't find any parasites in it, um, then then I'm convinced that really there were no parasites in that sample. Um, doesn't mean I'm arguing with you about your fish, right? Your fish may be very infected, but it just hasn't spread out to the rest of the tank. And I think this could be especially the case for some categories of parasites more so than others. So we find tons of uranema. This is obviously a very easy parasite to detect. Uh, we also find lots of cryptocarrion. Uh, again, it's got to be just an easy one to detect because we see it so much. Um, but there are a variety of worms that cause internal um, flukes, that cause internal uh, 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 infections that we have never seen in our in our tests. Um, perhaps it's because they're internal and thus just harder to to sample. Um, so. So I'm raising the possibility you can have an infected fish and not have an infected tank, but let's let's be sure about it. So what I'm what I'm trying to always follow up with these days, if you think that's your case, you think you've got an infected fish, but your test said your tank isn't infected, let's follow up and do a swab of the fish. Um, because in many cases we can just by directly swabbing the fish and running that that swab sample on a test. In many cases, we can then find a, a parasite that we couldn't see the first time. What's the best way to uh, catch the, uh, the fish in a reef tank? I suck at this. <laughs> I'm so bad at this. He does it. Man, for me, I have to take the tank apart, and it's terrible. This, I wish I had advice to give you, and I have none. I'm, I'm really bad at catching fish. I used a... Um, 
I actually used a fish acclimation box recently to catch a fish. Nice. I used it, bait it in there, put some, yeah, put some food I, in. I, and, it, and it took me about 15 minutes. I, you know, I, I tied a piece of fishing string to the, uh, to the door. And nice. um, it, the fish that I was looking to capture wandered right in. And I, and I, and I shut I shut the door. I was like shocked. <laughs> I was shocked. Yeah. I've also used um, small little fly fishing hooks that you know, crushed a barb on. A little, uh, oh, put wow. a little food on that. I've had success doing that uh, doing that as well. That's great. Um, so Amanda's got another question for you, um, and we're going back to the uh, bacteria again. Um, yeah. What did he find in bacterial levels when minor and trace elements were? added any data regarding um you know bacteria uh, you know um community compositions if you're using traces versus um not yeah i've got to say it's a um it's a question i haven't even asked of the database yet in principle it's a question i may be able to ask um because i do have this question in the questionnaire um dosing like other people people can um people can write in there other things that they are dosing. So I don't have a checkbox. Are you dosing trace elements? Yes or no. But I have this place people could say I'm dosing trace elements. So I haven't I haven't looked at the database to ask the question, but the the information is there that may allow me to. Yeah. Um, I certainly expect iron is going to have an effect. That's that's well established. Some of the other uh, you know minor components of seawater may may also have measurable effects, and I just can't predict them. Yep. All right, Eli. Well, listen, man, I think uh, maybe we could uh, wrap it up tonight. I don't want to keep you too much Sounds longer. Good. Any uh, any final thoughts in terms of, um, you know, the services that you guys provide? I mean, obviously, you visit uh, aquabiomics.com to uh, right. to go and, and get uh, kind of jumpstart the whole process in terms of getting sampling. But Yeah, that's right. I guess I, I want to leave you with the um, – the, the idea that you and I were talking about earlier, Keith, about all these these oddball, unexpected parasites yep. that show up in these samples. Um, so you know your your tank, although we haven't we haven't gone into it much today, did have that that odd mixazone parasite in it. We've seen that in some other tanks. We've seen some other uh, some other parasites out there that we never expected to find. I'll just rattle off a couple real quick. Um, um, It's a, it's a dinoflagellate, a toxic dinoflagellate, um, Fisteria, mm. PF, starts with PF, Fisteria. So this is- Sounds um, like a badass studied. one. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it, it's responsible for huge fish kills Ooh. in nature. Um, so it, they, they've studied it a lot on the east coast of the U.S., around the Chesapeake Bay. It was a big problem. Um Fisteria has showed up in several samples recently. Mm. I suspect it has entered the uh, the hobby supply chain at some level. Whether it's a persistent problem or not, I don't know. Maybe we'll never see it again after after it kind of washes out through the um, through the the supply chain. But my point in bringing these up, you know, we've got mixazones, we've got Fisteria, we've got um, another dinoflagellate, Piscidinium. So this is a lot like amylodinium, the cause of velvet, but piscidinium is only described in uh, freshwater, uh, causes um, 
a variety of velvet and also causes something called rust, rust disease in freshwater fish. Um, turns out this showed up in a few samples and I looked into the literature. There are known marine saltwater varieties of, of Piscidinium. So my point in throwing all of these out is as we're looking at sick fish in our tanks, we kind of impose on them this framework of, well, it's going to be ick, it's going to be velvet, it's going to be uranema, right? We've, we've got like a checklist. It's got to be one of these things. And, and what we're seeing is um, sometimes it is, you know, sometimes people tell me, yeah, I've got, I've got ick and I, I run their sample and sure enough, cryptocarrion. And other times it's something completely different. Um, so I guess I just want to, I want to share that with the viewers, that idea of being a little more flexible in your diagnosis. It may be what you think it is, or it may be something that nobody in the hobby even realized was in the hobby, like mm. Mixozoans or Piscidinium. Yeah. Like breaking new ground there. It's like, uh... and that's where, that's where, you know, DNA sequencing is the only technology that would show us these things. Um, so, you know, people are rightfully, uh, eager to get the results back and would like the results to be back much faster. DNA sequencing takes time. And, um, and sometimes we have these discussions about, should we move to other technologies like the rapid tests that people use for COVID or a, a PCR test. Um, and I always come back to this point that there's a place for all of those and we probably will move to some of them at some point, but uh, the value of DNA sequencing here is that we find this stuff that, that we weren't looking for that we didn't even know was was in the hobby. So I, I, I guess the is the parallel to draw that um, or the conclusion to draw with the uh, getting results quicker is that it potentially might compromise the accuracy of those results. I'm going to say it would uh, it would make them less complete. So these other technologies, you know, if, if you take that at home COVID test, it tells you really quickly whether you have COVID, but it doesn't tell you anything about all the other viruses right. out there. Um, and, and that's exactly the case for, um, you know, once, once we start using these technologies for testing fish diseases, we could do a qPCR test that would very quickly tell you if you have ick or not, but it would never tell you about all the other unknown stuff gotcha. that's the sample. So yeah, it's a, it's a benefit of the technology that didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't sure how important or valuable it would be until we started testing so many tanks and seeing just what odd parasites are out there. It's not all, it's not all ick. Yeah. A little creepy. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Eli. Well, listen, man, thank you so much again for, uh, for coming yeah. back on. I'm glad we didn't have any of the, uh, the, the technical problems we had in the, uh, in the past. It seems like we've, you've, you've solved that issue. I think we've got that one. Got, licked, got yeah. that one. Licked. Thanks for this opportunity. Really yeah, yeah. appreciate it. Cool. All right, folks, well, that's going to do it for this show, and I want to thank Eli again for being on the live stream. And I also want to thank both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for being sponsors and supporting the show. And I also want to thank all you folks for tuning in and watching the uh, the episode. Finally, a big thank you to Paul, who is the moderator. And um, Paul is also the president of Boston Reefer Society, so please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so important to the hobby. Paul did want me to mention that the uh, Boston Reefer Society will be announcing a Joseph A. Ventuti, Venuti, so, sorry, Salty Old Dog was his uh, handle, uh, memorial scholarship to the attendees of the upcoming Frags Giving event 
on November 12th at the Topsfield Fairgrounds in Topsfield, Mass. I'm going to be there. The, uh, the scholarship will be going towards students pursuing higher education in marine sciences, so it's really important. Joe was not only a longtime member of um, the Boston Reefer Society, but also a pioneer in the marine scene as he was an importer in the late 60s and 70s when captive coral care was in its uh, genesis. So Joe was the first one to administer new advice to the budding hobbyist. He was a generous gentleman that would literally give the shirt off his back, and he was well ahead of his time and has influenced many a hobbyist and set the course for the Boston Reefer Society as an educational organization. So this is a really, really important scholarship that uh, is being announced. And um, as for the show itself, just want to remind you folks that all episodes of Rap on the Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Rapping with Reef Bum live stream will be next Thursday, November 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with hobbyist Paul Baldassano. And his reef tank is over 50 years old. Like to get some testing done on that one, wouldn't you there, uh, Eli? You know, we actually tested it early oh, on, okay. but he's he's had some he's he's moved since then, um, and we've introduced a new test. So pitch it to him. Yeah, right. I'd love to. I'll, I'll send him a free test. I'd love to see what that well, fifty-year-old uh, tank looks like now. I'll mention it to him. So uh, yeah, if you want to so catch the uh, the full upcoming schedule of guests on um, wrapping reef bumps, just visit reefbum.com under the YouTube section. So until then, next time, be safe, be well, and uh, later. Thanks again.